This is December 29th, 2019, and um, we'll turn our attention uh, this morning to New Year's resolutions, willpower, habits. Um, this is from, uh, I'll be reading mostly from an article of two years ago in the New York Times um, called How to Keep Your Resolutions. Um, and uh, it's by a David Destino, Destino, uh, D-E-S-T-E-N-O, David Destino, uh, he's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University and the author of the forthcoming book, Emotional Success, The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. The uh, subtitle of this article is Willpower is for Chumps. To make a change, you don't have to feel miserable. And uh, I'll be skipping around over some paragraphs here, uh, but uh, just starting off with his first paragraph, New Year's Eve is a time to set goals, to eat better, to save more money, to work harder, to drink less. It's day one on the road to a new you. But this road, as we all know, is difficult to follow. Humans are notoriously bad at resisting temptation, especially as research confirms, if we're busy, tired, or stressed. By January 8th, some 25% of resolutions have fallen by the wayside, and by the time the year ends, fewer than 10% have been fully kept. <clears throat> the, uh, the basic problem... Uh, as he outlines it, is how do we get... Um, our tendency is to value the pleasures of the present more than the satisfactions of the future. Um, of course, the, the ultimate satisfaction is being fully present, but we'll, we'll get to that later. <clears throat> uh, he, he begins by citing the uh, previous research, some, some, of the, some research, some other studies. Um, uh, study after study has linked self-control to achievement in a wide range of areas, including personal finance, healthful eating and exercise, and job performance. Put simply, he says, those who can persevere toward their long-term goals in the face of temptation to do otherwise, in other words, those who have grit, are best positioned for success. Uh, I fished out a, a couple of I, I, I fished out notes from a couple of Te shows, um, one from 2015 and one from 2014, and no, excuse me, one from 2015, one from 2016. In other words, before this article, today's article was written, in which uh, I uh, I read uh, the studies showing that 
perseverance and grit uh, are key to uh, success in anything um, based on a number of uh, a lot of a lot of studies um, the title I gave of, of the 2016 article was Grit and Perseverance, Trump Cards in Success. Um, and uh, the other one I titled Marshmallows, Strategic Attention and Success. That was 2015, January 4th. Um, may refer back to these, but this author of this article, today's article, offers a different way. He says, uh, he says that over, th- over the past 30 years, in response to these findings about grit and perseverance, uh, something of a cottage industry has sprung up to tell us how to increase our self-control. If you peruse the books on the bestseller list, you'll find variations on a theme. The best way to increase self-control is to use our willpower and related mental capacities like executive function to ignore or suppress our craving for immediate pleasure. But then he contends, after a few decades of using this information, not much seems to have changed. We're still spending too much on impulse buys rather than saving for retirement. We're still continuing to indulge our sweet tooth rather than eating healthfully. Why? The answer, I contend, is that this view of self-control is wrong. In choosing to rely on rational analysis and willpower to stick to our goals, we're disadvantaging ourselves. We're using tools that aren't only weak, they're also potentially harmful. If using willpower to keep your nose to the grindstone feels like a struggle, that's because it is. Your mind is fighting against itself. It's trying to convince, cajole, and if that fails, suppress a desire for immediate pleasure. Given self-control's importance for success, it seems as if evolution should have provided us with a tool for it that was less excruciating to use. And then he says, I believe it did. We're just ignoring it. That tool is our social emotions. These are the emotions, things like gratitude and compassion, that support the positive aspects of social life. For years, I've been studying the effects of these emotions on decision-making and behavior, and I've found that unlike reason and willpower, they naturally incline us to be patient and persevere. So there he uses the word persevere again. It's not, it's not that we can discount perseverance, but he just seems to be arguing that we can get to it through these positive social emotions. When you are experiencing these emotions, self-control is no longer a battle, for they work not by squashing our desires for pleasure in the moment, but by increasing how much we value the future. 
We too often think about self-improvement and the pursuit of our goals embracing self-flagellating terms. I will do better. I will muscle through. I will wake up earlier. But it doesn't need to be that way, and it shouldn't. Self-control isn't about feeling miserable. The research on self-control shows that willpower, for all its benefits, wanes over time. As we try to make ourselves study, work, exercise, or save money, or we could add sit, the mental effort to keep focused and motivated increases until it seems too difficult to bear. So in these uh, other one of these other test shows I gave, it talks about the depletion of of uh, willpower, uh, and it seems to be a pretty pretty uh, compelling research that uh, we can only sustain our peak level of of willpower for so long, and then we have to replenish the tank. Um, if this is if this is true about human beings, then you would expect to. Uh, see that in the Buddhist tradition, Zen tradition, uh, evidence that that was taken into consideration, and we do. We don't have seven-day sashins every week. We don't have that schedule. Uh, and we, in anything, even in our daily schedule here at the center, we have break periods, uh, time to replenish the tank. Um, so from all except for the most heroic, exceptional um, people in Zen history, seem to need to uh, take some breaks uh, and to find a way to, yeah, refill the tank. So, just to repeat what he said, <clears throat> um, rather than squashing our desires for pleasure in the moment, we want to, these social emotions, uh, gratitude, uh, pride, and compassion, uh, enable us to uh, have more value the future more, and that gets us to buckle down and, and want, be more likely to want to do uh, stick to our disciplines. But he continues, we too often think about self-improvement and the pursuit of our goals. Oh, I, I read that. Uh, self-control doesn't, isn't about feeling miserable and that, that it wanes. Uh, willpower wanes over time. And then skipping a couple paragraphs here, he says, from an evolutionary perspective, the fact that exercising willpower doesn't come naturally to us makes a lot of sense. For millenniums, what led to success wasn't the ability to study for exams, save for retirement, go to the gym, or wait for a second marshmallow. Uh, the, 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 okay, the marshmallow, <laughs> the marshmallow test. Um, I bet a lot of you know this. They they did this way back in the, I think in the fifties or sixties, where they put some kids in a room and they offered them if they could if they could. Uh, they, they put a marshmallow in front of them. These are small kids. And if they could uh, resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were told, 
they get a second one. In other words, two mar two marshmallows if they can uh, postpone gratification. It's gotten a lot of a lot of attention that marshmallow study for ever since decades now, and uh, it's come under some criticism more recently in terms of um, cultural differences uh, among kids that that kids who have who live deprived lives uh, are going to be more likely to pounce on that marshmallow rather than uh, because for obvious reasons. But anyway, it's quite a quite a uh, uh, quite a lot of evidence of how it predicts for um, future success. So for millenniums, what led to sex wasn't the ability to study, save, go to the gym, or wait for a second marshmallow. For most of our evolutionary history, none of these self-focused goals mattered or even existed. It's far more likely that what led to success was strong social bonds. Relationships that would encourage people to cooperate and lend support to one another, which helped to ensure that their sacrifices would be returned time and again when required in the future. He says, but to establish and maintain relationships, people would have to be fair, honest, generous, diligent, and loyal. They would have had to be perceived as good partners. In other words, they would have had to behave morally. And that's, he puts it in italics. <clears throat> we'll get back to that word uh, in just a bit. What underlies these moral traits is the ability to put something else ahead of your own immediate desires and interests, to exercise self-control. Working hard to keep up your end of a deal or helping another person by giving time, money, food, or shoulder to cry on all require a willingness to sacrifice some resources in the moment. In exchange, you reap the benefits of those strong relationships down the line. I think of, uh, I think of the term intensives, which continue to be very uh, strongly participated in here at the center. We have two a year, one in the fall and one in the winter, where people uh, commit to uh, going the extra, stepping up whatever discipline they they want. They, extra sitting for uh, in the in the winter it's five weeks doing more sitting a week or a day uh, the idea being if you can sustain you might more, more likely be able to sustain the willpower the, the most more likely to per persevere at a stronger uh, schedule of sitting if it's just for five weeks but also if you have to report to others Working hard, he said, working hard to keep up your end of a deal or helping another person. That's sometimes people make that part of their term intensive pledge is to do something for others. When it comes to making such short term sacrifices, 
Most of us don't rely on a cold, rational analysis of costs and benefits. We don't normally calculate what's to be gained by helping someone else. We just feel like we should. It's our emotions, specifically gratitude, compassion, and an authentic sense of pride that push us to behave in ways that show self-control. I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that I've moved more couches and spent more time making gifts for friends than I thought possible when I felt gratitude toward them and wanted to show appreciation. What's fresh in my mind is uh, this this past uh, holiday break last week when the center was closed for a week. uh, I spent uh, chunks of time uh, on most days um, writing... uh, cards, uh, Zen Center New Year's cards of appreciation with a note in them uh, to those who've, members of the center who've given at the uh, level of sustaining membership um, or more. Um, and that was easy. It's wonderful when you f- truly feel grateful. Um, it's something you can, you can buckle down and do even when ostensibly... Uh, you're on break. You have a vacation. He continues, Or that I've worked longer and harder on difficult tasks when I wanted to feel proud about my abilities and contributions to a team. Here, too, I think about Sashin. Um, when all is said and done, that's it's part of what drives us to do our utmost in, in Sashin is, is um, pride. Uh, and this isn't, this is not just self-centeredness. It's wanting to live up to our full potential. But that requires faith in our full potential. And then just to finish this trio, this this triad of, of things, uh, uh, gratitude, uh, pride, and compassion, he said, or that I've, be, I, I, I've given more support to people when moved by compassion to do so. Compassion. All right, so anyone would, would acknowledge that if we can get our compassion um, in motion, if we can mobilize compassion or gratitude or a decent sense of pride, that can only be good for us and for others. Uh, But how do we do that? Well, it's it's the effect of long-term practice, all three of those. And let let me elaborate on that. First, with compassion. I, I believe that no one, or almost virtually no one, begins Zen practice wanting to liberate all beings. I, I just have never seen any evidence of that. Certainly not in myself. I didn't begin that way. I wanted to just get free of, of 
my own suffering. I was sick of myself. That's what got me to, to begin practice and, and practice hard um, just to get some relief from my own suffering. But then if we can sustain that long enough, it, it changes. It changes. It may take years, but eventually, as, as a result of the sitting, and especially if, if with many sashins, the whole notion of, of the division of self and other, that idea breaks down, and we can't help but feel more compassion for others. I don't believe it's possible to do good practice for many years without seeing compassion develop, without that being liberated in oneself. Same with gratitude. I think we, it's, it's more than anything that can be explained. It just happens. Through long practice, we come to feel more gratitude toward everyone, toward everything, people closest to us, and then even beyond others, and gratitude for what we have, for our blessings, for health. That's a factor in in uh, getting oneself to sit, is uh, having a sense of the, of the gratitude for the good karma to be able to practice. It is having the physical health and the mental health this time, this time around, having it uh, for now, having that. Compassion, just going back to compassion for a minute, uh, one, one uh, feature of that is, one, one form of that is um, in coming and sitting here at the center uh, and recognizing that, that when you sit here in this zendo, you're helping others who are sitting here. That there, there is a difference between sitting with 20 people or 30 or 40 people. The more people you get in a room, this is un, indisputable. The more people you have sitting together in one room, the more each individual is going to be able to draw from that. So if you're, if you're, if there's a, a morning or evening sitting uh, that you're thinking of going to, but you're wobbling. Well, one thing to consider is that you will boost the quality of the sitting here at the center. But all of this having been said, the key thing is not where you sit, but that you sit. That will nurture gratitude. It'll nurture compassion. And it'll nurture what he calls pride. Um... In, in Zen, what that really comes down to is faith in our true nature, our true self.
faith in in who we are essentially. And to get a sense of that, we could just look to the precepts. The precepts describe who we are in our essential nature. And that brings us back to what he said earlier about the importance of moral behavior. Uh, how throughout our evolution as human beings, um, this has been a big factor. If we live up to the precepts, or to whatever degree we live up to the precepts, none of us can do it all the time in any perfect way, but to the degree that we can uphold the precepts, then we will develop um, pride, faith, faith in ourself, in our enlightened nature. And then he presents some, he describes some research to back up his claim that these uh, social emotions, when they are harnessed, when they're developed, can help us stick to whatever our goals are. Um, He says more than a decade's worth of research backs up this picture. Studies from my lab, for example, show that gratitude directly increases self-control. And he, and he describes a version of the marshmallow test that it was adapted for adults in which they f- had people take a few minutes to recall an event that made them feel grateful or neutral or happy. And then they asked a series of questions. Would you rather have such su- a certain amount of money now or, or more later? Um, and those who were reported feeling neutral or happy, not gratitude, not grateful, but neutral or happy, were pretty impatient. They're willing to forego receiving uh, $100 in a year if we gave them $18 today. Those who are feeling gratitude, however, showed nearly double the self-control. And then in a similar vein, we followed people for three weeks measuring their levels of daily gratitude and found the same boost to self-control. Our research also shows that when we make people feel grateful, they'll spend more time helping anyone who asks for assistance. They'll make financial decisions that benefit partners equally rather than ones that allow profit at a partner's expense. And they'll show loyalty to those who have helped them even at cost to themselves. So this is a pretty compelling argument. Uh, Not just trying to white-knuckle your way through self-discipline to stick to your goals, but to find a way to nurture gratitude. And um, I suppose people who are newer to practice would just have to take it on faith that practice will do that. But also, there are ways to reflect. Um, and that, by the way, is part of really one of the one of the byproducts of Zazen. When we're sitting and we let the mind settle, we're, we're more likely, no guarantee, but we're more likely 
to feel our interconnectedness with others and, and through that, feel gratitude. It happens sooner or later. There are also exercises uh, for developing gratitude, uh, exercises in reflection. But the real, the real root source of it is, is through this no mind where thoughts settle. Because it's thoughts that, it's thoughts that cause us to feel separate. And when the thoughts settle and we, we see into our interconnectedness with others, uh, that's when gratitude finds its way, uh, out finds its way to consciousness. And then that's gratitude. And then he goes to pride. Uh, what my lab and others found when we looked at pride was similar. Making people feel proud, not arrogant, but proud of the skills they have, makes them more willing to wait for future rewards and more willing to take on leadership roles in groups and work longer and harder to help a team solve a difficult problem. And then compassion, the third one. Likewise, when we make people feel compassion, they'll take on the burdens of others, spending more time and effort to help get others out of jams and ease their distress. What these findings show is that pride, gratitude, and compassion, whether we consciously realize it or not, reduce the human mind's tendency to discount the value of the future. In so doing, they push us not only to cooperate with other people, but also to help our own future selves. Feeling pride or compassion has been shown to increase perseverance on difficult tasks by over 30%. Likewise, gratitude and compassion have been tied to better academic performance a greater willingness to exercise and eat healthily, and lower levels of consumerism, impulsivity, and tobacco and alcohol use. If using willpower causes stress, he made that point earlier, using those emotions, using these emotions actually heals. They slow heart rate, lower blood pressure, and reduce feelings of anxiety and depression. All of these are byproducts of sitting. By making us value the future more, they ease the way to patience and perseverance. So we see this this, this causal chain um, that happens through practice. Um, starting with daily zazen, boosted by occasional sessions, uh, we we notice results. They may not be dramatic results, but we will notice results if you're sitting and you're doing uh, your level best not to just be daydreaming, but you're making some effort to keep returning to the practice, and you do that every day more than 10 or 15 minutes, that's not going to bring much, bring you much. 
you will notice results. Of course, the obvious results. More patient. More calm. Even those two can inspire one to continue. If we're if we're adopting a new <coughs> a new eating regimen, a diet or other eating regimen, and we see ourselves losing weight, for example, this inspires us to stick with it. We see the results, and then that, in the case of zazen, that those results nurture faith in the practice, and that in itself uh, prompts us to stick with the daily sitting. So there's this this wonderful um, self-perpetuating uh, feature of daily practice. But then the question that I've heard countless times is, well, how do I get myself to sit every day? Well, it's easy. Nope, just kidding. <laughs> it's not. It's, if I had a good answer for that, I'd be a millionaire. Um, no, I, I just, it's mysterious. What, how do you get yourself to sit every day in the first place? Yeah, if you can do that for some weeks or months, then you're going to see the results. You're going to want to keep sitting every day. But how do you start it? How do you get it going? And uh, the best answer I can offer for that is you just have to, you have to feel the need to do it. Well, that's, that's, that's no uh, magic wand that will get you to do it. It, 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 it really means that it's, it's kind of out of your hands. It's, it's, um, it's, it's beyond just wanting it. Needing is one, is beyond wanting. There has to be a need. Roshi Kappel once said, everyone, everyone needs to sit, meaning everyone could be, be better off if they sat every day. He said, but there has to be a felt need. And so, what a lot of people do is they just, in fits and starts, they do it for a while and then they fall off the horse and then they fall off the wagon and then they do it more and then they, and then it goes like that back and forth and, and, uh, it may always go that way. Let's be honest. It's just a question of, do you need, do you feel the need to do it? That's all. But you will, if you can get it going long enough, you will feel that need. You're more likely to, because this is what happens. If you can sustain it long enough, then when you fall off the wagon, if you quit for a few days or weeks, you're, you are more likely to notice the difference. You're, gonna, you're going to not feel well. And that, that is a signal. That's a very positive thing. When you, you fail to sit uh, and you notice it, that tells you something. Even that's not a guarantee that you'll come back to it, but it's, it's something.
And then he goes on, uh, perhaps most important, while these emotions, gratitude, compassion, and pride, enhance self-control, they also combat another problem of modern life, loneliness. I bet some of you have read articles or some studies about how what an epidemic loneliness is now in, in our country. He says here, Today, more than half of all Americans report feeling lonely, especially in their professional lives. But study after study has shown that those who are seen as grateful, warm, and justifiably confident, that's what he calls pride, draw others to them. Because these emotions automatically make us less selfish, they help ensure we can form relationships with people who will be there to support us when we need it. Well, that's kind of a, um, not to be calculating about it, um, you know, or transactional. If I'm, if I'm compassionate and grateful and confident, then something will come to me later. It's just, it's just something evidently here uh, that they've found. It happens. But there's no better way a little bit strong a statement. One of the best ways you can get free of loneliness is to interact with Sangha. Yes, family. Yes, friends. But then Sangha, one of the three jewels, one of the three treasures. not so much in Zen, but in other Buddhist traditions, they talk about spiritual friends, having spiritual friends, the value, how important it is in staying on the path to have spiritual friends. They're really talking about Sangha, those who share this core value of wanting to overcome self-centeredness, egotism. Any, any, in any Sangha, um, we all have our afflictions, to use another Buddhist word. We all have our blind spots and we have these unfortunate habit forces that, uh, that we struggle with. Um, but those can be overlooked to a great extent, uh, by knowing that we, we're all on the same path. And it doesn't have to be just Zen. Uh, we, we have so much in common with those, even of other, other religions, who are striving to overcome self-centeredness. Uh, recently, uh, I went to a meeting, a steering committee meeting of the Rochester Area Interfaith Climate Action uh, Group. Um, so sitting there with uh, Christians of all different stripes and Jews, and uh, in the past I've kind of dabbled a little bit in interfaith uh, meetings and 
struggled a little bit, not not so much with the, with the language they use about God and this and that. Uh, that is something certainly by the time you've been practicing for decades, you don't you're not thrown by those words. They they're all they're all just different words for the absolute. Uh, it's not the language, but it's it's they're trying to um, craft their language so that the Buddhists don't feel uh, alienated. <laughs> That's what's uncomfortable. Um, but uh, it is inspiring uh, to enlarge a sense of sangha by meeting with others. Um, that's not something I could ever do very often, but but um, something that requires so much cooperation, this uh, climate change, uh, it's something, another resource to try using others. And by the way, with regard to that, uh, we've asked um, a woman from a, a synagogue uh, to come in and talk to us about some of the resources that are available to us uh, as a Sangha, available to anyone, uh, but will come in and talk to us about uh, some things, uh, solar farms where we can avail ourselves of uh, some financial uh, incentives by being part, not I'm not talking about sol- solar panels on your house, but uh, drawing from a, a solar energy and uh, Composting and some other things that came up in the steering committee meeting uh, recently. Um, so stay tuned for that. But Sangha, the wisdom, warmth, and never failing help of the Sangha. That that's that's a high, that's a high aspiration. Wisdom, <coughs> example, and never failing help. <coughs> And there may be people who have not had that experience in um, mixing with the Sangha. But if you stick with it long enough, if you give people enough chance, then um, I found that the Sangha is there when needed. We can always do more, and we do keep trying to do more in terms of the the, the, uh, Sangha um, the committee that works with people who are suffering from some kind of illness or other problem. Uh, we're always trying to do better with that. And then he ends, cultivating the social emotions maximizes both our resume virtues, and the, that is, those that underlie professional success, and our eulogy virtues, those for which those for which we want to be remembered yeah i i've only heard about that before with uh, david brooks the, the new york times columnist who talks about those two things the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues but then the author continues in nudging the mind to be more patient and more selfless they benefit everyone whom our decisions impact including our own future selves in short, they give us not only grit, but grace. Sangha 2, uh, there's no better way to apply all this that we've been reading this morning than uh, to take part in a, a term intensive. It's so, 
so supportive. It's so fortifying to hear others in the term intensive and report their struggles and to see that we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to, um, to do our best and having only partial success. That itself can keep us on the path. That the, one of the biggest obstacles is thinking that I alone is just me. Everyone else is succeeding. I can't believe how many people believe this. I hear it in Doksan. Everyone else is doing great. Everyone in the Sangha is doing great. But me, I'm just a, a loser who just can't seem to keep it going. Well, take a ticket. We're, we're, all, we're all in the same boat. Up to a point. So, as 2018 commences, take more time to cultivate these emotions. Okay, that means sit. Reflect on what you're grateful to have been given. Allow your mind to step into the shoes of those in need and feel for them. Take pride in the small achievements on the path to your goals. Doing so will help ensure that every future New Year's Eve will have more to celebrate than to regret. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. Without number, I vow to the great endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the ready way of Buddha. I to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dark against beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.